Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, coming to you from the COP28 Climate Talks in Dubai. I'm Ed Crooks. Now, the central issue of these talks is clearly emerging as whether the governments of the world will agree to make a commitment to phase out the use of fossil fuels. And if the world is to move off fossil fuels, then low-carbon hydrogen is probably going to have to be part of the energy mix that replaces them, particularly for specific uses including industrial heat and heavy trucks. But to turn that vision of a hydrogen economy into a reality, there are many, many barriers that need to be overcome. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. One big issue is with winning political and public support to get the essential infrastructure built. Mark Newman, who's chief executive of the US chemicals company Comores, says it's much harder than it should be to build the factories that provide essential components for the electrolyzers that can turn water into green hydrogen. By any measure, there's no net zero without a meaningful hydrogen economy. Perfect shouldn't be the enemy of good. We need much more collaboration between industry and governments as it relates to regulation so that we can bring these good solutions to effect now, not 10 years from now. And another key issue is just how expensive low-carbon hydrogen is compared to the fossil fuels that it's aiming to replace. And that's the issue that I discussed with John Hartley, who's chief executive of the UK-based hydrogen technology company Levidian. If you look at our system without any of the other benefits and it's just hydrogen, it is today at the higher end of the cost scale. So more like kind of eight to ten dollars per kilo in terms of production cost. And we're focused on electrical efficiency. So as we become more electrically efficient, you can really drive down that cost of production. We'll hear my full interviews with John Hartley and Mark Newman later in the show. But first, I spoke to Michelle Lujan Grisham, who's the governor of the state of New Mexico, about another big problem with green hydrogen, the availability of water. Governor Grisham, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited about our conversation. Absolutely, yeah, because it's something really interesting that the state of New Mexico is doing, I think, and I'm very keen to get into it with you. We're talking about hydrogen here, and we're thinking about low-carbon hydrogen and obviously enormous excitement around the world in the hydrogen economy. And a lot of potential clearly in green hydrogen made from electrolysis of water. And that's what a lot of people would say should be the focus of efforts to develop a low carbon hydrogen industry. But one of the big drawbacks with that green hydrogen that's perhaps not often thought about enough is the question of the water supply. It is actually pretty thirsty as an industry, Mm -hmm. needs a lot of water, needs a lot of clean, pretty pure water to be electrolyzed to make that low carbon hydrogen. And for many parts of the world, that's actually not easy. And there's a kind of paradox often where you'll get parts of the world that have a fantastic renewable energy resource, have a lot of sunshine, for instance, and so would seem absolutely perfect for using electrolysis to produce green hydrogen. But they don't have the water supply. And this is something which you've been thinking about in New Mexico, and you've thought of a very interesting way to address this, I think. So could you talk a little bit about what you're doing and perhaps explain what your policy is and uh, how you think this is going to kind of address this problem of uh, the shortage of water for hydrogen? Well, hydrogen for us in particular is a very important, we believe, strategy to decarbonize transportation. And we are really keen on that and have been entertaining and inviting any number of innovators and private sector organizations to engage with New Mexico, and they already are. 
But to your point that we were looking at carbon intensity measures, we should, that gets you to a green hydrogen model. But in an arid state who has been in extreme drought for decades, uh, that doesn't make much sense. And so what it does, frankly, just from that perspective, is it might minimize some of that private sector interest in our state, certainly on using natural gas and other related uh, opportunities for hydrogen. You have a different set of circumstances, but we want to race to the top for the cleanest, lowest carbon intensity opportunities for every single advanced energy design and transition possible. So we have two things that we have a lot of. One, given that we are an oil and gas producing state, second largest in the country, and that's an interesting juxtaposition for a policymaker who, A, wants to be held responsible and accountable, accountable for advancing clean energy designs and doing something uh, about uh, our carbon footprint and leading as a subnational. And two, recognizing that our scarce freshwater resources, which are used for everything, including until our administration, for oil and gas production, makes no sense. So we have produced water by oil and gas, and we have large reserves of brackish water. And the debate about brackish water, even before I was governor, is when there's a transition to desalinate brackish water for drinking water, uh, who's going to own that utility? Who's going to operate it? Where does it go? How do you balance that with the freshwater aquifers? And it never moves. Well, this announcement today, a strategic water supply, using brackish water and produce water, says, look, we will create a long-term predictable contract in the marketplace for innovators. You clean the water, we own the water, now we use that water for hydrogen, clean energy, advanced energy, chip manufacturing, intelligent manufacturing. And uh, as that innovation progresses, there may be other ways to use that water. So this is a very interesting model, right? This is a financial structure which you hear about used in the pharmaceutical industry in terms of creating incentives for people to develop vaccines and so on. This idea of an advanced commitment, which is so, is this the first time this has been used in water? Has anyone done this before, do you know? I am not aware of it anywhere else, certainly not aware of it in the US, and it dovetails so nicely with the way in which we're doing the same kind of deployment through the Inflation Reduction Act. So we are signaling to companies and innovators and first movers that this is where you want to be because you get the opportunity to demonstrate the success of your business models and we get the opportunity to regulate it, permit it, make sure it's viable and then create this reserve. And so it's better doing it that way you think than just mandating people process the water or only use process water for hydrogen, I mean, the regulatory routes you could go down, or I guess there's other kinds of financial structures you could have. You could charge people or offer some kind of subsidy for purifying water. You think those... Well, I'll give you an example. People- I mean, even in the produced water side, right, there's, uh, we permit the ability to re-inject that. Not all of it gets re-injected, but a, a great deal of it does. And that's it. Okay, so we don't have water that we don't want uh, out and exposed. But if we just process 3% of that water using a green hydrogen, it's enough energy, just 3% of just the produced water that's injected, 
to provide energy for every single household in New Mexico for a year. So it creates then the opportunity to really do that decarbonization, taking something right now that is not identified as a resource, it's identified as a waste. And when you identify it as a waste, in that way, it changes the mindset of the private sector. Right? They're being regulated, they're managing it in a finite way. We shift that completely, there's a complete paradigm shift. We want you to turn that into a commodity that we own. Uh, now we are investing in your technology. We're agnostic about it as long as it's got a proven concept. And I just change and shift that entirely. So how pure does the water have to be to use for green hydrogen? I mean, I guess one of the reasons I'm asking this question is because you think about then, so I've got this water, you've purified it, desalinated, whatever else needs to be done to it. You've got a gallon of water, then presumably there's a load of competing different uses you could use. You could send that for drinking water, you know, it could be used for agriculture, it could be used for chip manufacturing. It could for all of it, but we're, we're going to be pretty focused on this strategic water supply so that there's a division. This is for industrial practices, fresh waters for New Mexico. Mexican, so that we are being really clear because, look, water is scarce. Uh, the debate and fight about that is real, and it should be because we're talking about uh, making sure that for future generations, we've got a freshwater supply to protect all the humans on this planet. So the, the debate is, what are you going to use that for when people think about that you're going to take their freshwater or create other private sector situations that minimize their fundamental protection. So we take that away. Here, you, it, every industry will set their standards. And I also think that they set standards that are too high, that allow them to really make a case to policymakers that they just need access to fresh water. We just had that example with a solar manufacturer, and when we asked them just exactly how clean does this water need to be, turns out that minimal processes to brackish water, as an example, is suitable for their, their manufacturing. So we will set, there'll be a variety, I would, I would guess, of different standards depending upon the companies who are involved in that $500 million protected set of investments, so that we'll have opportunities to dedicate that water to green hydrogen, to solar manufacturing, uh, and to any number of chip manufacturing, and all those standards will be different. And you can get it pretty damn clean. So how important do you think hydrogen is ultimately going to be to New Mexico then? Critical. Uh, and I know that not everyone around the globe is there, but I don't see another way to meet both our uh, reduction in uh, greenhouse gases and carbon footprint. Look, I don't want to be neutral by 2045 or 2050. I want to be negative. Well, I can tell you right now, we can't get to neutral by that time frame without a transition to hydrogen, given how much CO2 we are, doing, we, we are uh, emitting in the transportation sector. And for huge agricultural states, New Mexico, as dry as we are, we're a giant ag state. Depending upon the brackish water, use that as an example, uh, there's a ton of different, take a crop like cotton, so we're not ingesting that cotton. Uh, you have a whole different set of standards, I think, that you can meet safely, productively, responsibly, which means we're protecting the ag industry, which would basically go away in the West. That includes, in large part, states like California. So I, I see hydrogen as a critical transitional 
clean energy source as we move towards uh, what I think people uh, uh, are oversimplistically, including in my state, we'll just put these green electrons just from solar and we're good to go. And it's just, frankly, not that simple, as you know. And how does it play out in the long term? Does, I mean, eventually, presumably, the oil and gas industry in New Mexico goes away and gets replaced by a hydrogen industry. Is that right? And if so, how big does the hydrogen industry get? It's going to be one for one, but you are absolutely in the right direction in our view, that it becomes a large industry with remarkable applications that is far cleaner, that allows us for decades to do that transition responsibly. And then think of the innovation in storage and uh, efficiencies in wind and solar and geothermal, uh, so that then that's all we're doing. I mean, even right now, I have a county that runs on just solar and wind uh, until I think they're able to do it for 12 solid hours. Nighttime gets a little tricky, but in short order, it'll be a 24-hour design. So we're allowing communities on their own to get there by creating transitions. I think it is the most responsible work because an all-or-nothing debate means that we're less likely to meet the targets for the future, we're less likely to decarbonize areas that we can do right now. I mean, we have hydrogen trucks and buses and cars. And we're happy to make sure we've set clean car standards. So we're, we are thrilled with the opportunity for EVs. You know where else you can get lithium? Produced water. So these are ways to create certainty into the places that everyone agrees the world must go. And we hope that today's an indication that New Mexico will be a leader in those transitions by using resources that most people identify as waste. And what does the timetable look like for it when you think about the strategic water supply and you're aiming to get the private sector to come up with ideas? Yesterday. I mean, we, we made this announcement uh, today. Well, we've uh, uh, certainly tipped our hat to our policymakers. Uh, I feel very, very confident that they're all in so that we'll use bonding capacity to get to that $500 million. 250 out of this legislative session, so 24. That means by the end of 24, we already have permitting right processes in place. We can already invest in uh, companies who are developing and bringing the infrastructure. And then well into 25 for the second tranche of money, we're actually, I'll, we'll be able to identify that cleaned commodity. So fast. So you're here talking about this at COP28 in Dubai. I think, are you the only U.S. governor that's come? As to far COP as I know. So what is good? More companies for us. I was going to say, why, uh, what's the justification for being here? And what, are you, what have you made of the conference so far? What do you think of what you've seen? Well, this is my heard? third COP. Right. And uh, I do think they are, uh, it's a remarkable undertaking. So for folks who uh, haven't participated, uh, I really do appreciate the breadth and the complicated nature of having 70,000 people participating in decision-making, networking, and highlighting and, and creating right the uh, exhibits that give us all uh, the opportunity to go further, faster. 
all cops are so big that it can be a daunting enterprise to sort of figure out what the best use of your efforts are. But look, when we got here, we announced with the federal government uh, in making sure that the U.S. is doing much better uh, in their efforts to reach their own carbon emission reduction targets. And of course, the eight, the, the 25 states in the U.S. Climate Alliance are doing better than the states who aren't. New Mexico's leading in that effort. So we got here to announce that the EPA basically is launching the New Mexico methane requirements in our rules for oil and gas all across the country. And we were able to showcase a study that shows we've had a 70% reduction and uh, Texas has not had that same experience. So we start there and we end with now we're solving our transition challenges with the strategic water supply. And are you also seeing COP28 as a big commercial event? This is one of the things that I think a lot of people have been saying and it certainly struck me in the conversations I've been having, how many businesses are here. There's a lot of talk about deals, a lot of people trying to uh, show off their technologies for decarbonization that they want to offer to the world. And I guess there's kind of two ways of seeing that. And some people put that in a negative light and say it's kind of undermining the effort on climate yeah, change. But I you have could certainly also... seen that reporting, yeah. right? And I agree with you that it's a different... Uh, this one's a bit different. You have what appears to be less of the advocacy aspects from an environmental community that's evidence-based and ready to go uh, and the business community. The beauty of potentially the learned lessons in Dubai should be that it's not all of one and none of the other, which is a lot like our announcement. It will take innovators. It will take private market resources because I, I do think that what really chills and stalls out so many really good ideas is when all of the efforts feel like they are over-subsidized and borne by taxpayers. And if it's a partnership so that the advocacy sets the stage and the tone, is really clear about what challenges we must overcome and when, and we allow the private sector to help us with those solution-based aspects, that is the right recipe. We just need to make sure that there's space for respectful dialogue between both. It can't be all of one because you won't hit those standards. And it can't be just advocacy because we're gonna miss innovation. And I think this is the right, like I said, partnering. Let's just make sure it's the right amount of both in the right way. And maybe that's the opportunity from Dubai. And we're going to deploy that in New Mexico. The advocates are really important to us. And frankly, our bold efforts in climate change have been because we have an aggressive, productive environmental community. You need them. And I'm grateful that they uh, leave very little room for us to uh, think sometimes out of the box without really adequately demonstrating that out of the box is good for the planet. That's more than fair. And now New Mexico's demonstrated we can do both. Governor Gisham, thanks very much. Great talking to you. And thank you very much. It's my pleasure. As I was saying earlier, I also talked to Mark Newman, who's chief executive of the chemicals group Comores. And we talked about where that company fits into the energy transition in general and into the hydrogen economy in particular. Mark, thanks very much for joining us today. Ed, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So first question I think it's important to think about is why are you at COP28? In the sense of, given all the competing demands on your time as a chief executive running this big multinational company, why is it worth being here in Dubai to 
take part in these talks? You know, I'm happy to represent the Comores team here. There's so much uh, need for public-private partnerships, you know, to really accelerate the work on climate. And so I'm excited to be here. We have a lot of innovation, as I mentioned, in our chemistries. And we need the right government regulation and incentives with innovation from us. Uh, we think we can get the job done. So tell us a bit about Comores then. So a lot of people, I'm sure, won't have even heard of the company. People who have heard of the company might think of you in particular in connection with titanium dioxide. You're one of the world's leading producers of titanium dioxide. But as I say, tell us a bit about Comores and where do you think you fit into the energy transition? So, so Comores has three industry-leading segments, titanium dioxide being one, our titanium technologies group, our fluorochemicals or thermal and specialized solutions, and our fluoropolymers, which we call advanced performance materials. And I would say our fluorine chemistry, both the refrigerant side and the polymer side, uh, lead to some very demanding applications for climate, whether they're low global warming refrigerants or the transition to hydrogen, where our nafion membrane is literally at the heart of the hydrogen economy. So lots of exciting developments in this chemistry. Uh, around climate and energy transition and advanced electronics. Talk about refrigerants first, maybe, because that's something where there's been quite a lot of activity in recent years and a lot of talk about refrigerant chemistries in order to reduce the global warming impact. Yes. We've had the Kigali Agreement, which was intended to advance adoption of lower global warming potential refrigerants. Explain a bit about that, explain what's happened, uh, maybe for people who don't know that whole story, and then explain where you fit in at Comores. Yeah, essentially refrigerant gases, when they escape, have a global warming coefficient. And so we've done a lot of work with the manufacturers to reduce the level of gases escaping to the environment. But as a chemistry manufacturer, we've done a lot also to develop and commercialize so-called low global warming potential or low GWP refrigerants, which have less greenhouse gas impact when they do escape. We've also done a lot of work to make these more efficient gases so that you're reducing energy consumption at the same time. And then of course, with the push towards electrification and the use of heat pumps versus burning fossil fuels, uh, these same refrigerants are used actually in reverse to extract heat from the atmosphere for heating in homes, whether it's hot water or climate. By the way, refrigeration is a growing class uh, as the climate warms globally, uh, but it's also important to reduce things like food waste in the cold chain. It's also important for vaccines. So there's more and more applications where the, the, the wise use of refrigeration is, is good for the planet. And tell me about hydrogen then. So you said something like your um, membrane technology is at the heart of the hydrogen economy. What do you mean by that? Yes. So uh, uh, most renewable hydrogen is made through an electrolysis process where you're essentially splitting the water atom, uh, the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. That split occurs across a membrane. And it happens to be our membrane in many cases, the nafion membrane, uh, where you're essentially separating hydrogen from oxygen using the water molecule. In the same way in a fuel, so that happens in an electrolyzer, in a fuel cell, 
You do just the opposite. You combine hydrogen and oxygen, you produce water, and that releases electricity. So the efficiency of the membrane and the design of that membrane uh, improves both the durability and the energy efficiency. You want to avoid losing energy across that membrane as you either convert electricity into hydrogen or hydrogen into electricity. And so we've done a lot of work on this chemistry and we're fascinated about where we can go with it. And where do you think you can go with it? What is the potential for that market? By any measure, there's no net zero without a meaningful hydrogen economy. And so when we look out to 2030, the addressable market for membranes, you know, where it's a, a couple hundred million today, ends up being over three billion dollars worth of membrane. Uh, so, 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 I mean, the CAGR on the hydrogen economy is double digit, and the first digit is probably three or four. And you talked about making the technology better yes. and improving the efficiency of things. How much potential is there really then to change things? Because clearly, as you say, people are very excited about the hydrogen economy. People see huge potential in it. But hydrogen at the moment, low carbon hydrogen, is yes. a very expensive fuel. Basically, yes. you know, if you compare so it to listen. natural gas or whatever, it's not competitive. Can you make it competitive? And if you look at any form of energy, uh, you know, there's a cost curve. And we're really in the early part of the cost curve. Uh, there have been studies that show that based on the incentives, especially in the U.S. with IRA, um, that we could get to $2 hydrogen by the early 2030s if we, if we start to get to scale production. So Camors right now is permitting a new Nafion membrane plant in Villiers-Saint-Paul, France. Uh, this will be a significant expansion in our capacity and capability. And so our view is scaling up and leveraging the science to improve both the durability and the energy efficiency of the membrane is a key part of driving us down the cost curve in the next decade. That is very interesting, yeah. And it's, it, I hadn't thought about that as, as part of the picture in terms of how this develops, yeah. So, going back to COP28 and your thoughts about the conference, to what extent is this nowadays a commercial event? I mean, is there something where, you know, are there deals to be done? Are you talking to potential customers? When you're thinking about something like, as you say, the hydrogen economy and its crucial role, as you see it, in decarbonization, is this something which is being kind of built in a very practical way here in the conversations that you're having? So Ed, clearly there is a commercial element and a business opportunity in providing solutions that address uh, climate. So we, we see that as, as the primary reason we're here to advance that thinking, but also to, to use this as an opportunity to interact with governments and NGOs to say, look, perfect shouldn't be the enemy of good, one, and two, we need much more collaboration between industry and governments as it relates to regulation to, to permit facilities like our plant in France to get these plants up and running as quickly as possible so that we can bring these good solutions to effect now, not 10 years from now. And obviously it's a problem that many 
uh, investors, project developers, companies talk about when they're thinking about making investments and making these kind of investments that could potentially contribute to reducing emissions and to building a low carbon economy, people say, well, there's so many restrictions, it's so hard to get anything built. Certainly a complaint you hear a lot in the US, in North America, but you hear it in Europe as well and in other parts of the world. Is this something which you think is a fundamental barrier? When you say you're here trying to get that message across to politicians, regulators, is this something you like them to kind of think about more than they're thinking about at the moment, which is the extent to which those regulations obstruct investment in emissions reducing technology? Yeah, and I think this is the biggest issue that we face, that on the one hand, you have the EU Green Deal, you have the Inflation Reduction Act to incentivize you know, the energy transition. But on the other hand, when you're trying to build a plant to bring more Nafion membranes online, it becomes very challenging. So, you know, we're really looking for regulatory coherence that says these are technologies that enable uh, a more sustainable planet. How do we enable them and how do we bring them online as quickly as possible? And when you think about the hydrogen economy in particular, and as you say, your membranes as part of that, what are the particular barriers that obstruct investment, prevent the technology getting deployed? So I'll give you an example. Earlier this year, there was a REACH PFAS restriction dossier. Wanted to essentially ban 10,000 fluorine uh, compounds. Many of those fluorine compounds, including our Nafion membrane, are part of the energy transition story. So we can't have the EU Green Deal on the one hand purporting to advance low carbon fuels, but then the very chemistry to get us there, uh, there's a proposed ban on that chemistry. Uh, so that, that would be a very blatant example, but there are other more subtle examples where building a plant and getting permits are just very, are very difficult. And REACH, those are the European Chemicals Regulations. Exactly, yeah. on the ECHA, yes. Right, yes. got it. And do you think there's any sense that politicians now understand some of those complexities, those interactions, those trade-offs that might be involved in building this low-carbon economy? Listen, I, I understand that in a democracy, uh, politicians have to respond to public opinion, but I think there is a need for regulators uh, working within the political context to say, look, these chemistries are essential. They can be made responsibly, and we've proven that. And so this is something that we should fast track, not just enable, but fast track because of the concern of the climate impact on human health and the environment. So we've developed a, a, a new specialty fluid where you insert the server in the fluid. The fluid boils. It reduces the energy to cool the server by 90%. Nine zero, you heard me right. Um, so data centers consume, contribute one to two percent of the greenhouse gases globally. But everybody's excited about AI. That means more and more data centers, right? So how you cool a data center is 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 a is a big deal. So we announced this this technology this year. We're working with the regulators to get the chemistry approved and then to build the plants. That yeah. is fascinating, yeah. very interesting yeah. stuff, yeah. Malcolm Newman, thanks very much. Good talking to you. Thanks, Ed. So we've been hearing about some of the problems of low-carbon hydrogen as a fuel of the future and some of the ideas for tackling those problems. But there is one big issue with hydrogen, 
that really dominates all the other problems, and that is the question of how much it costs. It is a very, very expensive fuel compared to the fossil fuels which it's aiming to replace. And that's the issue that I discussed with John Hartley, who's chief executive of the UK-based hydrogen technology company, Lividian. We're a climate technology company focused on the hard-to-abate sectors. What we do is really an industrial decarbonisation service. So we have a loop technology that brings in waste gas, typically methane, but it can be carbon dioxide. We apply microwave energy to that waste gas, and then we produce hydrogen and also captured carbon in a solid form, which is called graphene. And that graphene is itself a sustainable additive that you can decarbonize concrete, cement, and batteries with. So because we do those three things, waste gas decarbonization, hydrogen production, and graphene, there's a, an offer that sits around it to help really industrial customers to decarbonize. So we do produce hydrogen as part of that broader, broader offer. So this is, I guess, what people would call in the jargon blue hydrogen. In other words, this is low-carbon hydrogen produced from natural gas. But the kind of traditional process for that blue hydrogen would be take natural gas, which is so that's CH4, methane, basically, so it's carbon and hydrogen yeah. molecules, uh, carbon and hydrogen atoms, and you split them up. And you get then from that a stream of hydrogen, and you get carbon dioxide as the other output from that. And then if they were making blue hydrogen, they would take that carbon dioxide, capture it and store it or use it in some other way. And that's what makes it low carbon hydrogen. But what you're doing then is, is very different, you're saying, because you don't actually get a stream of carbon dioxide out of your process, right? That's right. Actually, we think that the carbon that we produce when we make the hydrogen has a real value. And I think it's a real shame if you don't utilize that. So uh, because we embed it in a solid form, you can use that to decarbonize for example, concrete and cement are 8% of all of global CO2 emissions. And you can reduce that footprint by using the graphene that we make. That's a real advantage. We also bring in the methane from a waste source. And this is really important. So we have a project with United Utilities up in the north of England, for example. And we're taking the methane, which would otherwise be burned to make carbon dioxide or vented potentially. And we can decarbonize that. We have a project with a landfill operator um, out in the UAE, which we'll be announcing shortly. It, it helps if you bring in what would otherwise be in the atmosphere and you capture the carbon before it gets there. Right, because it doesn't work in the same way your technology then if you were using natural gas just from drilling in a gas field as the feedstock. Yeah, that's right. So I think you talked about blue hydrogen and often that applies high temperature, high pressure to really crack the, the molecules and it makes a typically a low value carbon black material. Ours is different really for two reasons. One is we use microwave energy, not high temperature and high pressure. So it's a a cleaner, less energy intensive way of doing it. And the second difference is we focus on the quality of the carbon output and that graphene material that you can then utilize. Right. And I want to come up to that and I want to think about the economics of your technology yeah. in a moment. But before we do, just to be absolutely clear then in terms of what happens to the carbon in the methane that's used as your input, you don't capture or trap all of it, right? That there is still some carbon dioxide emissions that come out of your process. So we don't have carbon dioxide emissions at all. No. Okay. So we, we capture carbon in solid form and the carbon, some carbon does reform back as methane again. So our system is called the loop. So you can loop it back around and keep capturing the carbon, but we don't produce carbon dioxide. Right, so in emissions terms then, as it were, as a use for natural gas, it's basically zero emissions. Yeah, exactly. So the, the only carbon footprint of our process potentially is the 
carbon to generate the electricity because we are microwave, uh, we have a microwave process. So if you find a clean source of that electricity, and we know that the grid has managed to largely start solving that problem, um, that, that is a potential carbon source, but we don't have carbon dioxide as, a, as an output. So if you look at other hydrogen production technologies, you have this issue of, well, what do we do with the carbon dioxide? Do we bury it under the sea? Do we put it somewhere else? That's you know not that um, long term. It's not that low cost. Um, we prefer to, to really embed it in this solid form that you can then use in other places. Right. Got it. See what you mean. So how do the economics of that stack up then? Obviously, that's the huge issue in the hydrogen industry at the moment, which is that low carbon hydrogen is a very high cost fuel compared to traditional fossil fuels. It's very hard for it to be competitive at the moment. It needs a lot of subsidies to have any kind of impact in the marketplace. And the whole thesis for low carbon hydrogen in the long term is based on economies of scale, learning by doing, technology improvements, which are going to drive the cost down very significantly and make it a competitive fuel in the long term. But as I say, we're not there yet. So how does your technology stack up against that? I mean, how expensive is the hydrogen that you're producing? And what do you think the prospects are for bringing the cost down? Sure. So we're selling commercial units today to customers who want to return on that investment. And the reason we're able to do that is we can combine decarbonizing waste gas, so therefore avoiding fines or generating carbon credits with the hydrogen, but also with the graphene, which is a very valuable material because it's, a, it's a, an additive. So per gram, per kilogram, it, it has a lot of value. So for use cases where all three are used, the hydrogen is effectively a free byproduct of the process. You use the graphene, you decarbonize the waste gas. So what's the cost per kilogram? Nothing. It's just a benefit of having the system. If you look at our system without any of the other benefits and it's just hydrogen, it is today at the higher end of the cost scale. Uh, more like kind of eight to ten dollars per kilo in terms of production cost, but it's very rare and, and we're focused on, we're kind of two years old as a company, we're focused on electrical efficiency. So as we become more electrically efficient, you can really drive down that cost of production. Our aim is in the next couple of years to be competitive as a standalone hydrogen producer without the other two sources. And that's really the key focus of ours from an R&D perspective. Oh, okay, that's very interesting because I was going to ask the question of how big is your potential market then? If your market is customers that want both hydrogen and this carbon, the graphene material, presumably that's a much smaller set of people than the set of people that are going to want low carbon hydrogen in general. The customer doesn't have to use both themselves. They can be proximate to another customer who does use the graphene. So for example, let's say you want to use hydrogen, you want to decarbonize your gas. I will take the the graphene away, the captured carbon away, and I'll find another home for it. And you'll benefit from the economics of that. So uh, we don't see the market being being narrowed. In fact, because what we offer is a, an in-situ end-of-pipe solution on site, the market is enormous. Because if you want low-carbon hydrogen, you can buy it from an electrolyzer, but you have to typically transport it. You can't have the electrolyzer on your site because of its water footprint and because of its, um, uh, it, it, its, uh, its size. And you can have blue or grey hydrogen on your site, but then you make lots of carbon dioxide and it's not as clean. So because we capture the gas, we lock the carbon away and we do it in situ, that opens up a huge spectrum of people who have a need for hydrogen where they, where they exist. The other reason that the market is, is a large one is 
so many customers have gas consuming assets with a long asset life ahead of them 10 or 15 years they've spent money on chp units and their gas boilers etc and they can't rip them out overnight and switch to pure hydrogen we're able to effectively blend the hydrogen from our unit back into that gas flow decarbonize it by let's say 20 percent and it still can go through the existing assets without them having to be removed and so the the market is for us broader than we are currently able to serve because of that benefit. And what are the key barriers then you face in terms of that growth? When you think about still the low carbon hydrogen industry worldwide with all the different technologies put together is still very, very small. People have very ambitious goals in terms of it supplying significant chunks of energy demand, particularly in Europe and in North America. How do you get to that scale and how does Lavidian get to play a part in achieving that huge increase in scale? I think the hydrogen industry has a slight standoff at the moment. And we'll see this theme today at this hydrogen event that we're at at COP, where the producers are saying to the users, come on, give us guaranteed offtake and we'll build. And the offtakers and the users are saying, you start to produce and then we'll have to be confident enough to make those commitments. And so there's a bit of a, of a stuck position. There's, there's, there, are, there are some people who are starting to solve that problem and play a role in both sides. Um, because what we do is on-site and tailored to the demand of that site and because you can blend it in, you don't have to have the pure hydrogen investment, we seem to have been able to break that standoff. Um, but yeah, I think that's broadly for the industry a, a kind of a macro problem that we need to try and, uh, to try and solve. And my cynical line on it is often hydrogen is a solution in search of a problem, that a lot of the interest often seems to be supply-led. It's, there are a lot of companies out there that would really like to be making low-carbon hydrogen, not so many that really want to be buying it, not least, as they going back to that point, it's very expensive relative to traditional fuels, and so you need the right kind of financial frameworks and incentives in place to make it viable and we still are not really at that place yet, are we? I agree completely that the the solution is looking for a problem to solve. I think on paper the problem clearly exists, which is heavy users of heat and power who need to either move very heavy things like ships or heavy freight or have very power-hungry what now consumes gas and needs a flame processes on their site. So I think conceptually that connection happens. I think what we're missing in the short term is the business case to make it stack up. So I think the hydrogen production side need to talk about themselves less in terms of their own tech and more in terms of what it will mean for the customer. So we started talking about our industrial decarbonisation service, the fact that we can help a company on the journey towards net zero. That to me is more important to help them solve that problem than the particular technology and the way in which we do it. So look forward 10 years from now then, and let's say that Governments in many countries around the world have been able to achieve some of their objectives for very rapid growth in low-carbon hydrogen, and it is starting to play a significant role in the energy systems of these places. Where would you see Lavidian's technology fitting in alongside this more standard blue hydrogen technology, in other words, using methane and capturing the carbon dioxide emissions, and also green hydrogen made from electrolyzing water, how do you think those various different segments are going to stack up against each other? 
I think the question is the right one. That it's it's an and solution. So you need all of these technologies to complement each other. I I, I see a, a centralized green hydrogen uh, backbone, if you like, to the network where you have green hydrogen playing a you know, almost like a baseload provision of hydrogen to a, a hydrogen grid, where we play is the end of that pipe. So if you're an industrial user, how do you in, in situ produce on-site hydrogen either at a point of waste gas production or at a point of uh, remoteness that you need you, that you need that system? Um, we can also effectively be as part of that mains gas injecting hydrogen into the mix. But I think electro, electrolysis has a role to play in that central provision. What it struggles with is getting small enough units at the point that the hydrogen is needed. And that's really where our solution can can play a role. And as you say, we're talking here at COP28, Climate Talks in Dubai. Are you a regular COP go? Have you been to many of these events or is this your first? This is my first one, yeah, first, uh, first COP. What have your impressions been and have you found it a valuable thing to do to come here? It's been very, very valuable. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I think it's been good as a, as a, a, a really a a networking opportunity to meet people who are at the forefront of new technology, uh, p- businesses who are looking to decarbonize and looking for those solutions. I think it helped that we had strong momentum with our technology very early on with the methane pledge. So I think COP focusing on methane as a key gas that it had to, to eliminate was very helpful and shining a light on wastewater, landfill and oil and gas. The 50 oil and gas companies, the biggest ones signing up to a methane pledge really, really helps us. So I think when you get that kind of tailwind, it's it's it, it's useful. I think there's more to do. We're, we're, we're halfway through COP, maybe slightly more than halfway. I think carbon capture needs a big focus. So I think our investment in things like renewables has grown very quickly. Um, I think the uh, commitment to treble renewable capacity will help. But if you look at where investment is needed, that has been working and growing. Carbon capture isn't. In fact, we need 30 times the amount of investment in carbon capture uh, to hit the targets than we have today. So it's a a long answer to your question. I think COP as a a producer of real clarity, real commitment, this one so far has done well. It's got more to do in the in the, in the back end, and as an opportunity to connect with people who who need help trying to get to to net zero, and they don't have all the technology solutions, is is great for us to be part of. So that's very interesting. As you say, we're in the final few days of the COP. It seems very clear that the issue that's going to dominate negotiations in those final stages is this question of what is the language that governments come out with in terms of the future of fossil fuels. And there seems to be a pretty uh, profound argument between people who say we need a commitment to phase out the, fu- the use of fossil fuels against people who say some somewhat uh, softer, milder language is possible. You could talk about phasing down use of fossil fuels, something like that. Is that a significant argument, do you think? Does it actually make a difference whether COP comes out and says phase out or phase down? And What's your view on that argument? I mean, where do you come out and in, in what the language should be? Yeah, on is it significant or not? I, I think we will phase out anyway. I think the energy system has shown its ability to change and 
I think that we will get to that point anyway, regardless of what the rhetoric says, honestly. I think we will find a way of allowing the energy system to get people to prosper, to grow, for the economy to be healthy, to lift people out of poverty without the need to rely on, on oil, and, oil and gas, which has helped to do that so far. So I think we have started to solve it for the electricity system. I think we'll solve it for heavy industry and solve it for other sectors uh, over time. However, I do think that the words matter as a statement of intent because I think they really drive behavior and they really drive clarity. So I think my personal view is a, a phase out commitment would be very healthy. I think the question is what is the timing and, and, and exactly how do you bind people to that? The economy, the world is not ready to do that overnight tomorrow because it would have such negative repercussions on other things. I think it's more a question of, of when, I think optimistically, as I said, I think there is a phase out happening anyway. The question is, how quickly will that happen? And how can political will and words really um, help that to accelerate? And certainly that's something everyone's going to be watching very closely, including us over the next few days. Yeah, to see be fascinating. Exactly where the cop comes out. Yeah. John Hartley, thanks very much indeed. Great My talking pleasure. to you. Thank you. So, thanks very much to John Hartley for joining us. Thanks also to Mark Newman and Governor Michelle Lehan Grisham. And above all, as ever, thanks very much to all of you for listening. We'll be back soon with all the latest news and views from COP28. Until then, goodbye.